0: Nobody yet can possibly know all the benefits of artificial intelligence, not to mention the downsides. Some noted authorities have warned that it might be time to slow down. But just in the past six months, generative AI has exploded into the global economy. Will it actually generate money? That's a question for Professor Gregor Schubert at the UCLA Anderson School of Management. He's working with his colleague, Andrea Eisfeld, and with Miao Ben-Zung at USC. So, how is AI affecting the value of corporations? Hello again, I'm Oran Alney, and this is How the World Works, a podcast from UCLA Anderson. And Professor Schubert, welcome to our podcast.
1: Thank you, Warren.
0: So what's the bottom line so far? Are stocks in companies that are known to have AI going up or going down?
1: The bottom line is that they're going up. So what we find in our study is that if you look at the companies that have a lot of tasks that can be done more productively using tools like generative AI, their stock prices have outperformed the companies that don't have that kind of exposure to these productivity improvements.
0: Why does that seem to be the case?
1: There are a number of different reasons why this would happen. So what we've focused on in our study is the workforce dimension. One thing that large language models in particular and generative AI in general do is that these tools enable workers to do their tasks faster. For instance, if you repeatedly have to write emails that follow some sort of standardized template and just need to pull in some specialized information and then send out repeatedly the same emails. Those kinds of tasks can be done almost automatically with the help of these kinds of generative AI tools. And so as a result, some of these tasks will be done much more productively going forward as these tools come into operation and are integrated into firm processes. Different firms will have different exposure to these. So some firms will have a lot of tasks that these tools can be applied to, whereas other firms, for instance, if you run a landscaping company, presumably many of the tasks done there involve sort of manual outdoor labor, that generative AI will be useless for. And so different companies will have a different share of the tasks that are affected by this. And so we actually do in our research is we classify what share of the tasks in each company are likely to be made more productive, using these tools, the companies that will have more tasks that can be done productively, we would expect them to then as a result, also have higher cash flows have higher profits, right, if they can produce their product more cheaply, save either on labor costs or just generally produce more output within the same number of workers, we would expect those companies to do better financially. And that's what explains their outperformance, at least in the dimension that we're looking at, which is this workforce productivity impact of these tools.
0: How did you determine which firms are, to use your term, exposed more or less to artificial intelligence?
1: We used the classification of different jobs into occupations, and then those occupations can be decomposed into tasks. So there's uh, something called the ONED database that's maintained by the Department of Labor in the US that lists for each occupation, what tasks are normally involved in doing that. So for instance, uh, if you're an administrative assistant, it will say something like respond to scheduling emails and maintain a calendar or something like that. And so we'll list all the different tasks that each occupation does. And so for each of those tasks, We score each of those tasks on a rubric of whether or not that kind of task could be done more productively using these generative AI tools. And then we look at what occupations are represented in each company using LinkedIn data. So from a company called Reveal Your Labs, we get this data that for each company tells us in this company, there are seven admin assistants, five software engineers, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So we get sort of an exact count of what kinds of occupations are represented on LinkedIn in each of these companies. And then for each of those occupations, we know what kind of tasks are involved and whether or not those tasks can be done more productively. And so putting all of that together, we can compute for each company based on their employment structure, how many of the tasks that are done in that company can be done more productively.
0: So if I'm on the payroll, I think that maybe I'm better or not as good as whoever it is that's down the road. What about the potential for differences between employees, even though their categories may suggest that they are the same?
1: That's a great question. So, our results have to hold on average. So, it's very possible that the same kind of job in different companies actually involves a slightly different mix of tasks, or the workers in those companies might have different abilities at those tasks involved. And so, we're just generally scoring that this kind of occupation in general tends to be exposed to technology involve in a particular set of tasks. This does not mean that there aren't particular companies where the workers do slightly different things, even though they have the same job title as a different company, or they might sort of have different skills or might be differently selected in some ways. What that means for our results is that we would expect there to be some measurement error involved in this, of course, right, we're not going to perfectly pick up which particular tasks will be done by generative AI, we're trying to come up here with a sort of expected average exposure for each company. And then the important thing is whether or not our measure actually has some predictive ability in the real world. So we could always come up with some measure of how these companies differ in their general AI exposure. The really important part is, does this actually explain any of the patterns we see? And so, particularly in finance, the validation is usually in whether or not you can explain firm returns. The most important aspect is could an investor who had known this information have made outsized returns if they had invested based on, for instance, our measure of exposure. And given that we find that there are higher returns to the companies that score higher on our measure of exposure, there seems to be at least in a predictive sense, some predictive ability to this kind of task based average measure that we compute.
0: AI for a lot of people, I think, is something new, but obviously you're able to determine that it is something that is very definitely part of the economy. How long has it been going on? How recent is the sufficient amount of exposure that you could make the kinds of assessments that you have?
1: That's a good question. So there's two things to distinguish there is the financial market impact and the real world decision making of these firms in financial markets. We usually expect that analysts that follow these companies closely and other sort of people who are trying to figure out where to allocate their money, try to take a forward looking view where they try to figure out going forward, will this company benefit from it or not. And so it is possible that we see financial impacts, for instance, the outperformance of a portfolio that invests more in these companies and have these productivity improvements, that financial outperformance could very well precede any real world decision making where those companies actually put these processes into practice. That's the advantage of financial data is that it sort of tends to pull forward some of these future events, and already gives us an idea of what people's expectation is of what's going to happen going forward. In terms of the timeline, the chat was released in November thirty first, 2022. And so it's been a little bit less than six months since this tool was initially released. And so it's been a wild ride since then. Lots of companies have come out saying that they will retool their entire operations based on this, they will change their product lineup. And so one validation we do in the paper to show that companies are actually already worried about this or at least thinking about how to incorporate these technologies is that we looked at their earnings calls so companies will put on these quarterly calls with their investors where they report out their quarterly earnings and they also allow for some discussion going back and forth with the analysts and investors on the call to discuss what the major issues are that are facing companies and so one thing we show in the paper is that you see this distinct pickup in the last quarter of 2022 and then also in the first quarter of 2023 of investors discussing related technologies on these calls. So they're more likely to mention generative AI and large language models in these conference calls. And in particular, the investors of the companies that we identify as having higher exposure based on their employment structure, it's particularly those investors that start mentioning it more. So it's not just in general, all companies start talking about this, it's particularly the companies where we predict that for them there would be a bigger productivity impact who start uh, mentioning these technologies when they're talking to the markets.
0: When it comes down to the stocks going up or down, you said they're going up. What kind of averages do you have there? How much are they
1: going up? So what we found is that most of the stock market reaction, as you might expect, given how information propagates, happens in the first couple of weeks after the release of ChatGPT on November 31st, 2022. And so during those first two weeks, we see a 0.4 percentage point higher access return per day. So the portfolio where we sort of split all the companies into quintiles of exposure, the highest quintile of exposure in terms of the productivity improvements that could come from these technologies outperforms the lowest quintile of exposure by around 0.4% every single day in the two weeks following the ChatGPT release. But we also look at a longer time period. So we look at the four months after the release and find over that full four month period around a nine percent total cumulative return above and beyond the uh, low exposure portfolio for the stocks that have high exposures
0: what about the annual increase what would it be if it's 0.4 per day
1: this is sometimes difficult to extrapolate because we would expect a lot of the returns to be incorporated into the stock price in The first couple of weeks after the information is released, I'd be reluctant to extrapolate this to the full year because we can't really expect every single day for the following year to continue incorporating this information in the stock price, right at some point it is priced in and it shouldn't continue going up that much more afterwards. If you sort of naively extrapolate this out 0.4% per day would be more than 100% cumulative return over the year as a whole, but already looking at our longer period of four months, we find for four months, it's around 9%. So if you take that value and extrapolate out, it would be maybe 27% for the full year. But again, I think it's hard to extrapolate these out to longer periods because we'd expect that information at some point to just have been incorporated into the price for there not to be continue ongoing um, improvements.
0: I'm interested in the coverage of this in the financial press because I have seen one article. What it says is a daily 04 percent excess return translates into uh, over 100% on an annualized uh, basis. Does that suggest that the reporting uh, might, in fact, be more enthusiastic about this than it ought to?
1: Yes, I would say that I think there is a tendency for especially these new and exciting technologies to try and come up with very large numbers make for good headlines. And so, for instance, this 100% on an annual basis number, while sort of mathematically correct that if you took this 0.4% a day and multiplied it by the number of trading days in a year, you'd get something above 100. Yes, I do think it's a little bit hyperbole to try and extrapolate things in that way. I do think that in particular, one thing that's important, and that's often omitted from the reporting around this is the uncertainty around a lot of the future evolution. So even though we've seen a stock price impact recently, or in the first couple of weeks after the release, and in the first couple of months, it's very possible that future months might bring additional releases and additional information about these technologies, as for instance, new startups come up with new ideas of how to incorporate this, or people find out new applications of where these tools can be used productively. It's very possible that at those points in time, there will be additional stock market movements in response to this, that might either fully align with the exposure that we've already measured and the returns we've already found, or might go in the opposite direction if suddenly a different set of companies looks like it might benefit or not, right. And so especially with this sort of rapidly evolving technology situation, I think it's just really important to Try and track the ongoing trends and the new information that's coming out every week on this technological development and see what companies might now be differently affected by it. It's very hard to just say, well, because we've seen outperformance for these companies, that's it. End of story. Uh, These companies are the winners.
0: Obviously, that's an average when you say uh, 0.4 per day. What about the lower end? Are there companies that don't go up as much or that even have a negative impact from being involved with AI?
1: There is a lot of variation across different companies and industries that we found. On the one hand, there are companies that are not exposed in the sense that they just don't have a lot of tasks as I mentioned earlier that can be done more productively. And there are companies that have a lot of tasks, but for whom Having a lot more tasks that can be done more productively might actually be bad, even though we show that on average for the average company, this is good and their their stock goes up as a result of having higher exposure, there might be some companies for whom that is not true. And so we look at this across different industries. And for instance, we find that uh, there's a lot of variation where in most industries, this is positive. In particular, it's really positive in some tech subsectors, in particular, the one that Microsoft is in, but also in a lot of finance sectors. This seems to be very positive where the companies that have a lot more exposure to this technology seem to be doing really well in terms of their stock returns. And then there are other sectors, in particular real estate, for instance, where the companies do not do as well if they're more exposed to this technology. And I think this is something that we will look at in future research, and that's something that we definitely want to dig into more is What precisely is about those particular industries that drives these differences in how positive it is for you to have more exposure to these technologies and the potential factors there that could play a role is differences in product market competition to what degree sort of these cost savings on the labor side or these in productivity have to be passed on to consumers or to what degree they get retained in terms of profits for the firms. And the other dimension, for instance, might be the role of incumbents versus startups. So the companies that we're tracking in stock market returns tend to be large incumbents in these markets because they're publicly listed. It's very possible that new startups in the space are much more nimble and faster at incorporating these technologies. And so as a result, might take away market share from these incumbents. So even though these incumbents products can be made more productively using these technologies, it might be someone else who will take over from them and and make these products.
0: How does an investor determine one way or the other?
1: As an academic, I'm usually reluctant to give investment advice that's forward looking in this sense. But I think one thing people can generally look at is whether or not a company is actively trying to incorporate these technologies and to what degree they're sort of investing in these capabilities and figuring out ways to make them complementary to their existing product lines. And then on the other hand, to what degree there are competitors and startups in their space that are either better at this or more nimble at incorporating these technologies. Um, so for instance, we've seen a lot of interesting press releases by various companies that seem to be early in terms of adapting to this trend. IBM recently announced that they were going to hold off on hiring for thousands of jobs in their company because they had decided that a lot of these jobs could be done more productively by generative AI tools in the future, and so they would probably need a smaller workforce going forward in the medium term. That sounds like their leaders are already very actively thinking about how to really take advantage of these productivity improvements. Uh, Similarly, I think there was an announcement uh, by Wendy's trying to figure out if they could use generative AI and sort of automated customer service agents to take customer orders in their restaurant franchises. And so I think looking out for those kinds of developments and looking out for which companies seem to be ahead of the pack there in their industry in terms of incorporating these technologies might be a good way to go about identifying companies that will do really well.
0: Well, obviously this is a workforce issue as you pointed out at the outset. And one of the things that there's most concern about is whether or not it will have an impact of reducing the workforce. Is there any way at this point to determine whether that's more or less likely?
1: This is, as you said, definitely one of the most important issues around this is this concern that this might lead to mass unemployment because suddenly a lot of workers find themselves no longer being needed because generative AI or a smaller number of workers with help of generative AI can suddenly do a lot of their tasks. It is hard at this early stage to decide where this is happening or, or whether or not this is a major concern. One important aspect of this new technology is very different from previous technological changes is that it seems to be much more affecting white collar workers than previous technological evolution. So for instance, a previous wave of automation related to computers tended to affect a lot of routine occupations. So either routine white collar work or um, sort of routine blue collar work in factories, whereas the kinds of abilities that generative AI has in terms of generating text flexibly or doing text based research or uh, helping with the creation of code, those kinds of capabilities and tasks tend to be much more associated with uh, non-routine cognitive labor. So lawyers, software engineers, and the kinds of jobs that previously were more likely to be unaffected by previous waves of automation. And now suddenly these jobs are seeing an impact that previously had sort of been deemed safe or unaffected. And so it's different jobs now that are gonna be affected. They tend to be more high wage, these jobs that are impacted. And so from an inequality angle, maybe the policy concern is not that large in that if there is a negative impact on these jobs, it tends to hit higher wage workers more than lower wage workers. In some sense, lower wage workers who tend to be in service sector jobs or manual labor are much less affected by this technology. And so the policy debate and the policy response will probably have to wait and see a little bit to what degree the impact is actually negative or to what degree the new technology is actually complementing these jobs and making them more productive and maybe even more in demand or to what degree it is substituting for these workers. There's a little bit of a wait and see attitude that we need to take for the moment.
0: Well, if Wendy's or anybody else in that element of the market determines that they don't need to have people that interact with the customers, I assume that's what they're looking at, that could have a huge impact on employment.
1: Customer service is probably the one sector where low-wage workers might see an impact because that tends to be uh, lower-paid jobs. And that's also where these large language models seem to be very good at replacing humans because oftentimes customer service work involves responding based on a standardized script to customer inquiries or concerns. And that kind of standardized script response using natural language is exactly what these language models are very good at. That's exactly what I meant earlier when I said that in some sense, we'll have to watch how companies use these tools and what new and creative ways they find to incorporate these because even though initially it looked like some of the biggest impacts might be focused on for instance the legal occupations or healthcare where these tools can assist doctors in making diagnoses a lot of those sectors also have regulatory restrictions to what degree technology can actually be used in many of those applications and so even though the fundamental potential of the technology might be going in one direction The actual practical usage of the technology by businesses might surprise us, for instance, because quick service restaurants actually are some of the best positioned companies to take advantage of this because they're not as restricted in terms of regulation in where they can employ this technology.
0: Doesn't customer acceptance, though, have a lot to do with that?
1: Uh, It probably does. And, And that will be an interesting thing to watch, whether or not customers feel that interacting with an automated agent is worse or maybe even better than talking to a human, right? There's a sense that because the AI has access to the full database of all the information, you're in some sense no longer limited by the information or abilities of your customer service agent that you're interacting with. On the other hand, of course, there might be a limit to the flexibility and empathy of these AI agents in terms of interacting, especially in in sort of sensitive customer service situations. And so some of the service might be worse as a result of that. We might even see a dimension where in the future, there might be a kind of luxury experience for customer service where if you pay extra for a product or in a particular kind of loyal customer category, you get to interact with the humans and everyone else gets to interact with the cheaper customer service that is fully automated. And so it'll be interesting to see whether or not that human touch in customer service on the one hand will be valued and on the other hand, whether or not there will be some distinction there among customers for who gets access to them.
0: We think of GPT, for example, as generating text. What about the generation of codes, and how important is that? And is it something you're taking into consideration?
1: So important thing to note is that when we're talking about the abilities of these large language models and generative AI, in our research, we actually take into account not just their ability to create things like emails or um, write essays and things like that. We also take into account their ability to create code and that actually is a really important part of the economic impact that we expect. So there have been some other studies where people have done case studies of this and found that coders using chat GPT from the get go are twice as fast at solving uh, some of their problems as coders that don't use these generative AI to tools in their coding. And so when we look at what occupations are actually most likely to see an impact from using uh, generative AI, the top occupations are things like telemarketers, proofreaders, and word processors, for instance. But among those top 10 occupations, there's also bookkeeping and accounting, computer programmers, as well as statistical programmers or web developers, right, because they do a lot of repetitive generation of language. In this case, this means programming language. And those tasks can be done much faster, much more productively using these generative AI tools.
0: Back to healthcare, where one would think the human touch is extraordinarily important. We have one of the most expensive healthcare systems in the world, if not the most. Do you think there are liable to be efforts to ease up on the regulations in order to make uh, healthcare cheaper for people overall?
1: That is certainly my hope. I would hope that we can find ways of employing this to make healthcare more affordable. I think we have had a long history of going back and forth on regulatory restrictions on healthcare and trying to loosen them up in favor of patients, but also uh, becoming more risk averse, and therefore wanting to tighten a lot of restrictions in order to avoid any kind of risk to patients. And that is a tricky balance to find, I would not claim that I have any answer to what the right balance of risks and benefits there is. Ultimately, I think healthcare is one of the sectors where trying out new technologies can have a huge impact on human welfare, just because it matters to so many people and is such a large part of our economy. On the other hand, of course, the product involved is human health. And so as a result, any mistake made by technologies will both have a big possibly negative impact, and also will lead to a lot of public backlash against those technologies. And so especially in terms of broader acceptance of these technologies, healthcare might be one of the riskier spaces to try to incorporate them without risking a big backlash from the public
0: is there do you think in the financial markets for example sufficient awareness that there may be an enormous amount of risk
1: here it's a very contentious issue whether or not we should use policy and regulation to slow down the development of these artificial intelligence tools the interesting thing to me is that different parts of this debate seem to cite very different concerns and it's not necessarily just a disagreement over facts it's oftentimes a disagreement over just what things should actually matter for policy making. So the researchers, they tend to focus on existential risk questions, issues related to artificial intelligence becoming powerful enough or integrated enough with our systems that ultimately it could lead to an extinction event where artificial intelligence either decides or accidentally induces nuclear war or the extinction of the human race through other means. Those kinds of risks are very much about broad end of world issues, whereas other people say we should slow down these developments for some of the reasons we mentioned earlier related to potential impacts on the workforce and employment issues. And those tend to be the issues that tend to resonate more with policymakers, as we actually saw in a recent hearing with the head of OpenAI in DC where a lot of the the senators asked more about sort of potential employment impacts and were not as worried about the extinction of human life by artificial intelligence. And so there seem to be smart people on either side of these debates in terms of being very worried about this or thinking that these worries are overblown. And I don't think I've made up my mind on who is more or less valid in their concerns here. There is a bit of a question of how financial markets should take this kind of risk into account. If we think that the most important risk is really the full extinction of human life, it seems impossible to price that into financial markets, given that, for instance, I don't know if you wrote a short option based on trying to bet on the extinction of human life, there wouldn't be another side to that trade who would be around to pay you off if your bet is validated. In some sense, these sort of very apocalyptic scenarios tend to not be incorporated into stock prices, because There's not a scenario where you make money from this and then get to spend it anymore. And so maybe that is fundamental shortcoming of financial markets, that they're bad at pricing these existential risks. But then on the other hand, other policymakers and stakeholders in society are maybe not that much better equipped at trying to think about these scenarios that really involve vast destruction of life. Because sometimes the scale of the issues involved just seems so large relative to the normal discussions around inflation and GDP growth we're used to having.
0: Well, it seems to me the revolutionary nature of artificial intelligence is measured by the fact that you and I are even talking that way and that I had to ask you that question and then you had to respond to it in the way that you did, talking about existential questions.
1: Yeah, I fully agree. It is amazing to me that this technology was not even mentioned in the news in the fall of last year. Six months later, it is suddenly a question of existential importance that both policymakers and firms and investors are talking about everywhere. And that seems to be at the forefront of everyone's thinking about the future of the economy and the world. It's very strange to me to live in times where you see this rapid technological change and see the world sort of changing in front of your eyes is really a very strange feeling.
0: And when you talk about the hearings that have been held on this, it's been pretty obvious from those that some of the people who might have decisions to make in terms of policy have not yet gotten even close to being up to speed on what artificial intelligence is, let alone what it might do.
1: Yes. And using these technologies, both in their personal life and also in their professional life, where the main topic on their mind is how rapidly the world is changing, which industry will be revolutionized next, and what the future of the planet looks like. And then on the other hand, I have other people in my social circle who respond sort of with a shrug and say, oh, ChatGPT. I haven't really looked at it yet. I'm not really sure what it's good for. This dichotomy between widely differing views of information spheres is quite striking to me. And it's really strange to almost be going black and white in terms of the views and concerns people have over the importance of this technology.
0: With all due respect to those who want to just kiss it off, it seems to me if it's had the kind of impact that you've described just since November 21st of last year, it seems to me it is something that we all better pay attention to.
1: Yeah, I am definitely of that opinion. And that's why we work on this research, because these technologies are somewhat hard to understand in terms of the underlying code and the underlying mechanism that is driving what's going on there. For some people, this is sometimes written off as a curiosity rather than a sort of fundamentally different technology in the same way that people felt sort of validated by being skeptical of NFTs, for instance, as something that was a big hype a year and a half ago. And then as the hype died down a little bit, people felt validated sort of not paying attention to these new and exciting topics. And I, I think I can understand that for some people from the outside, it's sometimes hard to distinguish. Well, is this just another sort of overblown hype, where six months from now, we'll say, Well, you know, we said this would change everything in the world, but it didn't. And so even though I would say that having played around a lot with these tools, and having done research on what the potential exposure is, I think this is not just a hype, this is here to stay. And this is going to be a major change in how the economy functions. I can understand that for people who don't interact with this on a daily basis, it's sometimes hard to distinguish this from previous topics where people sort of employed similar hyperbole in their language, and maybe were wrong about it. Are
0: there already financial advisors who have picked up on your research and who are telling people that they can advise them about the impact of AI and as they're telling them what stocks to buy?
1: My co-authors and I have had a lot of people reach out to us who wanted some input from a journalistic angle of trying to figure out what articles that are targeted at investors should be saying about these topics, but also from investors in particular who wanted advice on this. I don't know if anyone is actually investing yet based on these kinds of insights. I think there's also a sense that given the way the academic publishing process works, this is right now in a working paper stage where we have confidence that the results are what they are in their current form, but there's usually an iteration with other academics in terms of trying to dig deeper into why our results look the way they do, how we could possibly improve our methodology to some degree. And so we're sometimes reluctant to sort of point at particular companies and say, this company will do well just based on this working paper right now. And we're hoping to go through the validation process of refining this through seminars and interactions with other academics before we make conclusive statements and tell people how to invest their millions based on it.
0: If people uh, want to know more about this, more than you're able to tell me in a podcast of this kind, where
1: should they look? They can find the full paper on our website. So either on my website, which can be accessed either through my UCLA profile or just by searching for my name or through the website of my co-authors, Andrew Eisfeld and Miao Ben Zhang. So we make the paper publicly available. Also, the references in our paper to other authors that are working in this space can be quite useful. This is such a rapidly evolving space where everyone is putting out new research. Basically, every week, new papers are coming out and new insights about what these technologies are doing. So I think there is just kind of helpful to try to follow particular people who are working in this space and through Twitter or just by occasionally checking in on their other social media accounts, seeing what those people are producing and what they're talking about. So if anyone wanted to follow that topic, that's what I would recommend. Follow the people because the written output gets outdated very quickly quickly and people come up with new stuff every week.
0: So you've been able to do research on the wild ride that has taken place since it said November 21st of last year. What do you predict for the wild ride soon to come?
1: I don't know if I can, if I can make strong predictions, things are changing so rapidly. I'm always amazed how every week new startups, new applications, new technological evolutions of these tools are coming out and it just seems like it's a never ending stream of better and more capabilities that these tools are able to do. I think we will hopefully see in the next couple of months some kind of regulation or policy framework being put together that will give us some idea of where policymakers sort of will allow this technology to go and where there'll be more safeguards put into place. I'm probably as curious and excited to see what the next couple of months bring as everyone else. I think one thing that we'll be doing in terms of our research is we'll be updating our methodology and our paper as we go forward to see whether or not the kinds of returns that we find in the first couple of months of the release of these tools, whether or not those kinds of returns hold up, or maybe if they get smaller or bigger or reverse, all of those things are possible. As I mentioned earlier, it's very possible that new information that comes out will favor different companies than it did initially. And so we'll try to keep up to date as we have future iterations of this research and we'll see where that goes.
0: Obviously, this is going to open up all kinds of areas of research.
1: Where do you see it going? The skill demand side. So to what degree we will actually see firms change their hiring behavior in response to the availability of these new technologies, right. So one part of incorporating these technologies is changing their existing processes internally and figuring out what their existing employees can do differently. But also it might involve hiring new kinds of employees suddenly, If, for instance, customer service work is five times as productive with the help of these generative AI tools, it might make sense to hire a lot more customer service worker, but focus on in your hiring job postings on workers who have some ability to flexibly work with these kinds of tools and maybe have already some experience with them. One thing we're planning to look at is to what degree job postings and the way firms are hiring, what positions they're hiring for will reflect them trying to incorporate these technologies going forward. And that's also one way we will be able to validate whether or not our sort of ex ante measure of which firms have productivity potential, also is able to predict which firms are more likely to try to incorporate these technologies through their hiring.
0: Well, thank you so much for uh, helping us better understand what has been happening over the last six months. And all the best in terms of trying to determine what's going to happen next. Professor Gregor Schubert at UCLA Anderson, thank you so much for being with us today. It's extraordinary to talk to you.
1: Thank you, Warren. This was a pleasure.
0: This has been How the World Works, a podcast of the UCLA Anderson School of Management. I'm Armin Olney. Great to have you with us. Join us again.